Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are the, are the two epistles most centrally deal with the subject of the rapture and the return of Jesus. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are the two most eschatological of the epistles. In the Bible, God gives us his word, his revealed word, through different literary genre. Even in English, you would not read prose the way you would read a book on how to assemble a computer. You would not read poetry the same way you would read a novel. Okay. You have different literary genre. The word of God is the same. He communicates his word in different kinds of literature. We have wisdom literature, history, narrative, apocalyptic. We have letters. When you read a letter, you read it as a letter. When you read psalms, you read it as you would poetry or the lyrics to a musical piece. When you read the Gospels, you read narrative. You don't read it all the same way. In the Bible, we interpret the more complicated passages of Scripture and the more complex areas of literary genre in light of what is plainly stated. The epistles do not use typology, allegory, or midrash without explaining it or assuming that the readers understand what it means. The epistles give the most direct, clear meaning. In a broad sense, in a broad sense, you might say that the prophets of Israel, the Hebrew prophets, wrote commentaries on the Torah, on the Pentateuch, on the five books of Moses. In Judaism, you have the Tanakh, the Torah, the Navim, and the Katuvim. Katuvim, the writings, like Psalms, Proverbs, things like that. So you have the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and the law, and all that. But the way it is applied in practical situations throughout history, Israel's history, is what the prophets did. They kept pointing people back to the law and showing what the law meant and how it would apply to their situation. A general equivalency is true of the epistles' relationship to the Gospels. What the apostles did when they wrote the epistles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was they took what Jesus meant. They interpreted the teachings of Jesus and showed people how to practically apply it to their situation at a given time and place. You understand? We might think of the epistles as inspired commentary. Not a commentary commentary, but an inspired one. It's the Holy Spirit's own commentary. The purpose of a commentary is to make something clear to the average person who is not theologically trained or groomed in the original languages. That's the purpose. It's to, it's to help people to understand what a text means 
particularly if they're not theologically trained themselves by way of grammatical, historical, exegesis, language, etc. Well, think of the epistles like that. The Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write the epistles to take things that are more complicated and make them comprehensible to average people. You and I. That's what it's for. Now, you don't have to worry about typology or allegory when you deal with an epistle. You don't have to worry about Midrash. When the epistles use a Midrash, like in Galatians 4, the two women, Sarah and Hagar, it explains what it means. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, don't muzzle the ox. It explains what it means. The purpose of the epistles it's to be user-friendly. It's to make the rest of the Bible user-friendly, to put it into a modern colloquialism. It's to make the rest of the scriptures user-friendly. We read the Gospels in light of the epistles, through the prism of the epistles. We look at Jesus' teaching on his coming, on his parousia, through the lenses of the epistles. And the epistles most devoted to the purpose are first and second Thessalonians. There's eschatological material in the other epistles for sure, particularly Peter. But the ones dealing most with the subject of the rapture and the parousia are first and second Thessalonians. Okay. The new is in the old concealed. You all know that. Novum testamentum and vetere latet. The old is in the new revealed. We read the Old Testament passages about the last days from Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah in light of the New Testament. But when we take the New Testament revelation of Jesus, we look at that in light of what the apostles wrote. Now, the Thessalonians were people who are, by and large, except for a handful, not Jewish. They were people saved from pagan types of backgrounds. Okay. They didn't know too much. It was the seaport and probably the major city of Macedonia, where the Romans had colonized it and they built the, uh, they built the highway. It's called the uh, Ignatian Way. They built a, a, one of these Romans, like the Via Maris and the Via Appia, there's the Ignatian Way, Via Ignatia. And they built it up to this, through Macedonia to the port in, in Salonica. Today it's called Salonica Thessalonica. Okay. On the Chaldic coast, northern Greece. Paul had only been there about three weeks initially. And he was very concerned that he didn't have much time to leave these people much of a foundation. They did not have a large Jewish community, at least not a large Jewish community. They had a Jewish community, but not one where there had been a lot of people saved out of it. In other cities where he went, a lot of the people who were saved were Jewish. They already knew the Old Testament. They already had a background in monotheism. They already had some premise. These people didn't have that advantage to anything like the same degree. And he didn't even have a lot of time with them. So now he's crossing a cultural divide. He's taking these Jewish concepts of a Jewish Messiah and a Jewish gospel and trying to make them relevant to these people from a 
totally Hellenistic background. And it's interesting that the thing that caused the most confusion and problems in this church was the thing that's causing so much confusion in the church in this century. Eschatology. The parousia. The return of Christ when the it happened. The people, these two epistles were probably written 50, 51 A.D. Probably from Corinth. Very close to each other, they were written. Very close to each other. And the problems they were having were things like, well, what about the people who are already dead? We're waiting for the rapture. But what about the ones who died? Are they going to go to be with Jesus too? And something else that we see today. Well, there's no point. The world's going to end, so what's the use? I had a woman about 10 days ago in the West Midlands, very nice woman, came out of a loony church after she heard our teaching, but she had this idea, what's the point if her children doing A-levels are going to university? Jesus is going to come and the world's going to end anyway. Now, the proper way to raise your children is, well, what I tell my kids is this, plan for the future, but don't plan on it. Plan for the future, but don't plan on it. You see people ignoring things like everything from essential medical treatment to getting a pension to <laughs> education of their children. The Jehovah's Witness cult has been great for this. They have been, they've, they've wrecked havoc in people's lives with this mentality. But it's a problem that goes back to Thessalonica. They had very basic questions and didn't understand basic things. So Paul is writing to people who don't have any Jewish background, therefore no scriptural background as such, who don't know a heck of a lot. It's all new to them. He's only been with them a short time when he plants the church. And he's trying to sort out the problems by post. Okay? The Romans had a, had a postal system. And through these roads and things. It's a good place to begin. We interpret the complicated in light of the simple, the complex in light of the direct, the symbolic, the allegorical, the metaphorical, the midrashic in light of the plainly stated. Now, I've said many times, there are two errors in the church. One is the Gnostic error. Roman Catholicism is based on it. Mormonism is based on it. The Vineyard Movement is based on it. Basing doctrine on symbols. Typology, allegory. Deadly wrong. To refute this, Protestantism has come up with a maxim. Which, as stated, is fine, except that they don't understand the full implications of what they're saying. It goes something like this. When the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no further sense unless the context demands it. But they interject, at least in their thinking, when the context plainly or obviously demands it. What is plain or obvious to them 
First of all, they are reading an ancient book with a modern mind. They are reading a Hebraic book, essentially, with a Hellenistic mind. And they're reading an English translation of things that were written in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. So, while to them, the context may not demand it, the context does. More often, much more often than they have any idea about. In Midrash, you have two levels. This is not to be confused with the Greek allegation where you're looking for the secret meaning as a basis of doctrine. In Midrash, it's never doctrine. It's illustration of doctrine, illumination of doctrine. We call it the Pshat and the Pesha. The Pshat comes from the Hebrew word Pashut, meaning simple. The simple, direct meaning. The Pesha is the spiritual meaning under it. The Pshat is the woman caught in adultery was stoned. The Pesha is interpreting scripture and light of scripture. The law was engraved on stone. When they were the Jews stoned people because it was a Midrashic illustration of the law showing us were condemned. Now these people, when the plain sense, when the text makes sense, seek no other sense. Well, they're right in what they're saying. But they don't understand when the text demands it or not. You understand? We don't look to anything deeper unless the text demands it. Well, fair enough. But the text demands it more than they can see. Again, they're reading a Hebraic book with a Hellenistic mind. They're turning a Jewish faith into a Gentile one. Even into an American one or an English one or a German one. That's what they do. Neither is correct. We have to go back and understand it in the context God originally gave it as the Holy Spirit allows us and illuminates us. The advantage in Thessalonians or the other epistles is you don't have to worry about that stuff. You just take it on face value. Then you can understand the deeper meanings. Let's talk about terms. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post Trib, free wrath, no trib. Let's deal with no trib. That's the easiest to dismiss. What these people say is, the book of Revelation has no future meaning. It was totally fulfilled in the early church in the first and second century. Matthew 24 was totally fulfilled in 70 AD. These people are Preterists. Again, listen to the background tapes, we explain it. The kingdom now people have this whole idea we're going to conquer the whole world for Christ before he comes, kingdom authority, dominion, and all this rubbish. Well, I want to know, this is known also as post-millennialism. It becomes married to something called Reconstructionism. Reconstructionism is a Calvinistic doctrine that says we have to reconstruct society using theonomy or God's law. In other words, the same as Israel was a religious state, the church should make a religious state and take over the banks, the governments, and so on. Now, we have tapes dealing with this. 
Well, if Satan is bound for a thousand years, the question I always ask is, who keeps letting him go? This is not simply a delusion. It's a self-inflicted delusion. <laughs> it's too nonsensical to even take seriously. Yet, the dominionist or triumphalist, it's built on this presupposition. They have to ignore the rise of Islam, New Age, the Mormons, the cults, and say the church is going from victory to victory because they're marching and proclaiming it into the heavenlies. They're just people who are silly. Again, not sober in spirit, drunkenness. Only a drunk thinks he's doing well when he's doing terribly. His business is going to the wall, his marriage is falling to pieces, his health is on the rocks, but he'll have another drink. Right? Only a drunk would do that. That's why the Bible warns of sobriety. No trib. Doesn't even deserve consideration. Pre-trib. This is the belief by people that we are going to be taken out of here before Jesus comes. There will be trouble, but not the tribulation. Before this tribulation happens, the Lord will come and take us away. Many of my closest friends and even associates believe this. Not people in Moriel so much, but certainly people who Moriel considers to be friends and allies. Arnold Fruchtenbaum believes this. Dave Hunt believes this. And these guys are my friends. You understand? These are good people. These are people I agree with 90%. As far as I know, John MacArthur believes this. I think. Pre-trip. Let's look at the verses they get to substantiate this. Turn to Romans 5, 9. Oh, we didn't pray yet, did we? <laughs> I forgot. Heavenly Father, so we forgot to pray. Mea culpa. Please be with us now and help us to understand these things. And let it, Lord God, have such an impact on us by your mercy and the power of your Spirit that it will make us more effective in serving you in these last days. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I knew something was wrong other than my sinusitis. <laughs> Romans 5.19 We were made righteous because of Jesus. Therefore, because he made us righteous, we are not going to experience God's wrath. Fair point. First Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Revelation 3.10 Because you've kept this word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. And the word here for testing is also to be translated temptation. So they think because the church is going to be kept from this hour of testing that will happen in the day of the Lord, 
because we will be kept from the wrath to come, that means the church will be raptured before the tribulation. What these people do is the following. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. They know the Holy Spirit restrains sin. So because he's convicting the world of sin and restraining sin, when he's taken, because he's in the church and he's in us, we're taken. That's the argument. If he goes, we have to go with him. Okay? That is their argument. Now, it was an argument that would be a tremendous problem to people who don't have a belief in things like baptism of the Spirit. Pentecostal people would not have the same problem with this text. Okay? Other people who don't believe in, in, in things like baptism of the Spirit would have a problem. Now, personally, I do believe in baptism of the Spirit understood biblically. It's one faith, one baptism. Baptism is experiential. You can be born again and not baptized in water and still be saved. If somebody hasn't been baptized, they'd still go to heaven if they haven't had a chance to get baptized yet. And so, too, somebody can be saved and not, not filled with the Spirit. Some people are filled with the Spirit from the moment they're baptized and the moment they're saved. There's all variations. We have a tape on baptism explaining this subject. The only thing baptism does is take an objective truth and makes it a subjective experience. When you pray to receive Jesus, you've co-died with Christ. When you get baptized, it becomes an experience. Going under the water is co-death. Coming out is co-resurrection. Baptism only takes something that is already a truth and makes it an experience. It turns a positional truth into an experiential truth. It takes an objective truth and makes it a subjective one. Okay? The Holy Spirit's already in you from the moment you're saved. Well, spirit baptism is the same. It's simply experiential, the same as water baptism. Important. Now, when it happens, all this, different variations. There's two ways to look at it. One is, of course, the one the Bible uses is death. Somebody dies. We use the term, not just dead, but we have the idiom, dead and buried, right? Buried is the finality of death. So, of course, we believe in a resurrection, but we say dead and buried. Well, how long does it take to bury a corpse? If the person is really saved, uh, really dead, and you look at them in a coffin, well, they look like they're asleep. They've been embalmed, and there's the illusion that they're still with you. You know, objectively, you know they're no longer still with you. But the subjective illusion of them being with you is still present as long as you can look at them laying down looks like they're sleeping. Once they're buried... What is objectively true now becomes a subjective realization. The other way I explain it is matrimony. You get engaged, get married in the church, then you consummate the relationship. Jack and Jill fall in love, Jack and Jill get engaged, Jack and Jill get married. When they walk out of the church, they're married. In the eyes of God, they've made a vow. They're one. In the eyes of the church, they're one. In the eyes of the law, they have a license. They're one. So in the eyes of law, society, the church, and God, they're married. It's already an objective truth. But only when they consummate the marriage, 
does the objective truth become a subjective realization? You don't really know the person in terms of marital intimacy until you consummate the marriage. Well, the objective truth is there, but not the subjective realization of it. So the objective truth of a death is there, but not the subjective apprehension of it. Well, baptism is the same. Now, what these people do is say, no, it's all one. They make the objective and the subjective the same thing. See what I'm saying? They're not differentiating between the spirit indwelling and the spirit outpoured. Their eschatology is wrong because their pneumatology is wrong. Now, I'm not boasting about Pentecostalism. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed and disgraced about what's happened to so much of Pentecostalism. I'm embarrassed and disgraced to be a member of the Pentecostal Church, not my particular movement, but Pentecostalism generally. I find it a, a source of humiliation of what's become of it. I'm talking now about pure Pentecostalism. Pure Pentecostalism believed it had a mandate to restore things that the other churches didn't. The Reformers, well, they restored things like justification by faith and the authority of Scripture. Then the Baptists came along and they restored things like believer's baptism and a separation of church and state. Well, the Pentecostals believed they had to restore further things like gifts of the Spirit. Okay? But they also believed they had to restore biblical eschatology. To them, things like premillennialism was essential to being a Pentecostal. We have to restore, put back what these other churches didn't. We have to go back to the Bible further. Classical Pentecostalism, biblical Pentecostalism was always premillennial. Now that Elam has abandoned it, the Assemblies of God are abandoning it in more countries, it, it, it's, no longer, it's no longer real Pentecostalism. Most of what you see is no longer real Pentecostalism. But in its classical sense, classical Pentecostalism, because its pneumatology was closer to correct, its eschatology was closer to correct. You have a relationship between pneumatology and eschatology. Someone's doctrine of the Holy Spirit and spirit baptism will impact the way that they interpret Thessalonians. And we'll come back to that later. So these pre-trib people say, well, when the Holy Spirit's taken, the church must be taken with him. That's their arguments. Okay. These are the pre-trib people. The mid-trib people. The mid-trib has a lot in common with pre-trib. They will say, well, the church does enter it, but is saved from the worst of it. Now, again, there are certain points which would suggest that the church enters it and is preserved from the worst of it. No clear text, but certainly things you can infer from other texts. Their problem is, both the pre- and mid-trib people have a particular view of the last seven years of history. This last seven years of history is divided in Daniel and Revelation into two periods, 1,260 days by the Hebrew lunar calendar, or... Times, time, times, and half time. That last seven years can rightly be called the 70th week of Daniel. But there is no basis to call all of it 
the Great Tribulation. You can't call all of it the Great Tribulation. Because the second half, everyone agrees, is worse than the first. You can only prove the Great Tribulation is the second half. Even though it will all be tribulation. And in fact, tribulation will even begin before this. This seven-year period, prophetically, has as much to do with God's prophetic purpose for Israel and the Jews as it does the church. It's during this period that something called Hatekufat Hatsarat Yaakov takes place. The time of no relation, I assure you. So, replacement theology begins fouling up somebody's eschatology. First of all, a wrong pneumatology, a wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit fouls up someone's eschatology, but so does a wrong understanding of God's purpose for Israel and the Jews. Again, as I said last night, replacement theology has a sinister dimension. I'm not saying the people who were who misled into believing it are sinister, but the doctrine itself is sinister. This period has as much to do, probably more to do, with the purposes of God for Israel and the Jews than it does the church. Especially, well, we look at Revelation and say. So the assumption is that the whole seven years is the Great Tribulation. That's an assumption. Now, we know the Antichrist will somehow deceive the Jews and make a pact with Israel and break it halfway through. In this, he's prefigured by Antiochus Epiphanes. We have this on the Daniel and Hanukkah tapes. No problem. But if you look at when this guy makes a treaty and you simply count 1,260 days, you'll be able to set the date for Jesus' return. That's one reason it doesn't work. We can't know the day. Okay? You can't know the day. That's one reason it doesn't work. However, Although the classic mid-trib position doesn't work, the idea that he is coming during this period does. Here becomes the problem. Pre-trib and mid-trib both have some truth in them. We cannot say everything pre-trib people say is wrong. They're not all wrong. The church will not experience the wrath of God. They're right about that. Secondly, mid-trib, the church will enter this seven-year period. What these people confuse, and what I'm happy that others are finally beginning to realize, what I've been trying to say for years, is that two things are being confused. They mix two things which should not be mixed. What are they? They think the wrath of Satan equals the wrath of God. It is all tribulation. It is all philipsis. No. 
The wrath of Satan does not equal the wrath of God. Faithful Christians will not experience the wrath of God. They will experience, to a degree, the wrath of Satan. And always have. But in the end, it'll be something unique with the Antichrist. Now, we have the Antichrist tapes, and we explain how the pagan emperors, what they did, how this prefigures what the Antichrist will do. Except for the Gnostically influenced, except for the church fathers who were influenced by Gnosticism, like Oregon. The pre-Nicene fathers, the patristic writers closest to the apostles, all believed that the church would be afflicted by the Antichrist. They all believed that. That was all their expectation. The early Christians thought Nero was the Antichrist. He killed James. I'm sorry, he killed Peter. He killed Paul. They confused these two things. Then there is the next group, the post-tribulation people. When you go into post-tribulationism, you have to really begin allegorizing scriptures and building your arguments more on figures, types, and allegories. However, there are one or two clearer passages which they maintain support their point of view. Matthew 24, 29-31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven be shaken. Then the sign of the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, etc. That would seem post-trib. Revelation 13, 3-10. And I saw on one of his heads as it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. He counterfeits the resurrection, doesn't he? And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. You see that? 42 months? How long is that? 12, 24, 36, and 6. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, the Lamb who's been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes, if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Chapter 14, verses 9 to 12 of Revelation. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
And they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and yon ton and yones. In Greek is the same term used for our salvation, the glory of God and the high priesthood of Jesus. If hell is not an eternal conscious damnation, how can you be sure your salvation is not eternal and conscious? Roger Foster and co. John Stott and co. But look what it says, the perseverance of the saints. What Calvinism has done with the tulip, you know, the tulip of the Calvinists. Notice the way the New Testament uses perseverance of the saints. It's totally different than the way Calvinism does, isn't it? Here it's talking about those who are able to withstand in the last days. Now, the Calvinists take this because it says those who are destined for this and destined for that, they turn this into a somehow they, they get the doctrine of an unconditional once saved, always saved. And if people fall away, they were never saved to begin with. I would like someone to explain to me how your name could be blotted out of a book of life if it was never in there. <laughs> now, we have a tape called One Saved, Always Saved, question mark, where we deal with this in depth in two parts. What Calvinism basically does is it, it's a philosophy more than a theology. It denies the restoration of free will. Man lost his free will because of sin. At the cross, by acceptance of Jesus, we're given it back. Christians don't... Christians may sin, but we don't have to do it. We have a choice. We don't have to sin. Unsaved people have no choice. The most they can choose is when, where, how, but not if. Christians don't have to sin. We have a choice. The free will that man lost is restored through salvation. We're given the power to follow Jesus that unsaved people can't possibly do. Calvinism denies, basically denies that free will is restored. Um, the Bible teaches free will was restored. Let's look at the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 21. I kept looking, and that horn, the Antichrist, prefigured by Antiochus, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. At that time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now you understand, verse 25, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and He will intend to make alterations in times of the law, and they will be given to His hand for times, time, and a half time, this three and a half year period. Notice the saints take possession of the kingdom when? When Jesus returns, isn't it? Now, the kingdom now, people, the dominionists, they get into this latter-day reign man-child thing. They have to allegorize the whole thing away, saying when the Holy Spirit is poured out in power in the last days, that's how the Ancient of Days somehow returns. Jesus returns to the church instead of for it, and we conquer the whole world, and we take possession of the kingdom. This is, you see how they have to do monkey tricks with the text. So those are the arguments, or the kinds of arguments, that the post-tribulation people 
The problem is this. There are verses that seem to contradict each other, aren't there? These things we've looked at, we've looked at some that would suggest the church is taken out, others that suggest it goes in, others that suggest it goes through all of it. We have to find how we reconcile these apparent, emphasize apparent contradictions in a way that's obviously, obviously clear to everybody. The first problem with the post-trib people is, what do you do with verses where Jesus says, I will take you out of the time of testing and the wrath to come? But the faithful won't go into it. That's the first problem. The second problem is also date setting. If you look at when the Antichrist signs this treaty and breaks it halfway through, well, if you can count to 1,260, you can obviously double it. Then you get into the problem of setting dates again. You can't do that. You don't know the date. The third problem is the Bible says we are caught up. How can you be raptured back down to earth? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where are you going to be raptured to? If, if he's going to come then and, and establish his kingdom, Jesus is going to come back and establish his millennial kingdom. Now, all these people tend to be premillennial. Most of them. If this happens, how are you going to be raptured? If we go through the whole tribulation and Jesus comes back at the end of it and sets up his kingdom, well, why, why are you going to be raptured? Now, what happens when he comes back? We have a millennial, post-millennial, and pre-millennial. The early church and the apostles were uniformly pre-millennial. We have a tape, one Messiah, two comings, understood from a Jewish perspective. If there's no millennia, Jesus is not the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah of the Jews, neither is he the Christ of the church. A Judeo-Christian understanding of eschatology can only allow for premillennialism. Many good people have been amillennial. They spiritualized it. People who I would have hoped would have known better and who I liked very much, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones being one of them. However, while amillennialism is wrong, it is not as wrong as this post. As soon as you see post-millennialism, that Jesus is reigning now and he's reigning in the church and through the church, we're going to conquer the whole world, run the other way. Run the other way. All these guys caught up in this, Mike Bickles guys and the Kansas City guys and Terry Virgo guys, keep away from that stuff. Keep away from it. There is a fourth position, and there are different variations of it, but it all basically says what I've been saying for nearly 20 years. We must distinguish between the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God. They are not the same thing. Not the same. True Christians enter the tribulation, but are saved out of it. What does the scripture say? These are those who have come 
Has anyone here not heard the Autumn Feast of Israel paper video? You've all, has anyone not heard it? Quite a lot of you have not heard it. All right, I didn't want to do this, but I'm going to have to do this. Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation. Chapter 8. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. How you apply time to eternity, I don't know. But silence. Silence. Then we have seven seals. Out of the seventh seal comes a numerical subset of seven trumpets. Right. Before they blow the last trumpet, you have two Witnesses and the rescue of the Gentile woman. When they blow the last, now up to chapter 11 now. When they blow the last trumpet, Revelation 11:15, the kingdom, this city kingdom has become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah. What I cannot find any commentator who picks up is this. Understood as a parallel from the point of view of Midrash. Joshua chapter 6, the story of Jericho, is a type of what happens with the rapture. Don't ask me why no one's ever seen this before. I don't believe I'm that brilliant or enlightened, but it's obvious. When the Levites led the procession around Jericho, they had to be totally... Joshua thought the battle of Jericho, Jericho of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a tumbling down. Heard about Gideon's army, heard about the man of Saul, but you ain't heard nothing like Joshua. He's the greatest of them all. Now, 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 Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. How many days did they march around? But the seventh. They had to do it seven. And when they blew that last trumpet, when they blew that ram's horn, them walls came a tumbling down. <laughs> they said, the kingdom, no, the city has been given to us by the Lord, didn't they? You know from the a tape sojourning in the wilderness, how entering, crossing the Jordan is entering heaven. Coming out of Egypt is a salvation from the world, but crossing the Jordan is entering the promised land. It's probably going to heaven. Somehow, you have two witnesses, but before they blow that last trumpet, you have, in Joshua, two at a grime. Spies. Somehow, those two spies, are among many people, many people, 
in the Bible who prefigure those two witnesses. People tell you Moses, Enoch, Moses, Elijah, Moses and John, the apostle. There's all kinds of theories. There are many people in the Bible who prefigure and teach about those two witnesses. Somehow, the way that those two spies got the Gentile woman out, that's a type of the rapture, you understand? Before the judgment came. The rapture happens between the sixth and seventh seal. Hear what I said? The rapture happens between the sixth and the seventh seal. What does it say in Job? In sixth calamities he will preserve us, but from the seventh he will keep us. Now, as we'll look at in our later session, everything in the Bible supports this idea. We never base a doctrine on a figure of speech, a type, or allegory. But every illustration, practically every illustration, every major illustration in the Bible shows God's people entering the tribulation and being saved out of it. This is pre-wrath as people have come to call it. I didn't used to call it that, but now that the idea is beginning to catch on finally, people are calling it pre-wrath. You've got a big problem. There are people in theological seminaries who were taught this, who wrote commentaries on this. It's what their professors taught them. There's whole institutions like Dallas in America who are predicated, their whole eschatology, the institutions themselves make their name on eschatology, and they have a vested interest in perpetuating. What's their problem? Turn to Daniel 12, verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. It's sealed. The Holy Spirit unseals it at the appropriate time. Daniel, Revelation, Zechariah, these things are getting clearer and clearer and clearer. Suppose somebody gave you a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces. Now, when you buy a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces in Walworth, it has a picture of it on the box. Right? Well, suppose somebody bought you a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces. And he says, I'm not going to show you the picture. I'm going to kind of describe it to you. Just the basic points. You have to put it together. And there's a house next to a brook with a water wheel. And there's some ducks and there's flowers. And the sun is coming up the back of the clouds. And there's a few birds. And it's a bit green and it's a bit... Well, that's it. Work it out. As you begin putting that together, suppose you've only got 25% of the picture put together. Oh, I think it's going to look like this. But then by the time you get 35% of the pieces put together, you begin to change. I think it's going to look more like that. By the time you're halfway through it, I just can't figure this out. How come that's blue and this is red? It just doesn't seem to drive. And that's in this corner. This doesn't make any sense. Piece by pieces. <laughs> you just 
driving yourself up the wall. Some people find those puzzles very relaxing. Other people, it makes them nuts. Get a few more. Now you're 60% into it. Then you're 70%, but there's still things you can't quite find. Only when you get to the end, or at least close to the end, does it all begin to click. Well, over the last hundred years particularly, the Holy Spirit has been giving us a few pieces of the puzzle. And the closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more pieces he's given us. But what you have is an artist's conception of what it's going to look like. You know what I mean? Well, this, no, that can't be because it doesn't look like the artist's conception. <laughs> we have artist conceptions of Jesus. He's a Norwegian. <laughs> You're going to meet this Oriental Jew with a complexion sort of like Demas, a nose sort of like mine. A half style like a rocker in a heavy metal band. That's good. That's not him. He doesn't look anything like him. Well, that's him. That's him. The artist's conception. These people are trying to make you fit the mold of what they were taught, forgetting that the Holy Spirit is showing us more and more clearly all the time. If God is going to use commentators and commentaries and expositors as guides, that's fine. But when you find these be-all, end-all, watch out for that stuff. Watch out for that stuff. You know, when you're putting a puzzle together, it only makes the pieces of puzzle sometimes that seem to fit, but they don't quite fit. Isn't that right? They just don't quite, and that ruins everything. Because if it goes wrong here, it will go wrong over there. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Everything seems to be going well. Another thing that drives people up the wall. <laughs> Everything seems to be all right. One stupid thing just doesn't work. Then i got to take the whole... Oh, no, I don't want to take it apart. I know what we'll do. We'll take out some nail polish and make it... <laughs> well, that's what they do. They skirt over those passages that don't fit their presuppositions. They have to try to make it fit somehow. Don't rock the boat or ruin everything. We built the whole reputation on this. This book has sold 300,000 copies or whatever. Or 900,000 copies or a million copies. Well, it just doesn't work like that. No, the faithful church will not experience the wrath of God. But we've always experienced the wrath of Satan. And in a unique way, we will experience the wrath of Antichrist. This is what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. Look at Romans 2.9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. We have in Midrash what most of you know from our tapes, Kal Vahoma, light to heavy. This is a general truth. Because salvation is available to Jews first, by virtue of covenant, the consequences for rejecting it 
are on them first by virtue of covenant, okay? Because Jesus was a Jew, because the Bible was given through them, to and through their people, because salvation was from the Jews, the consequences of rejecting the gospel are against the Jews first. The benefit is there first, but God does not give a benefit without a balance. Privilege and responsibility always go hand in hand. Chosen for what? Holocaust? That's what happens if you reject the Messiah. Break the covenant. Co-equal in Christ now. Jews who have rejected him are not equal. They've been kicked out of their own olive tree. Unless they repent, they can be grafted in. The consequences of rejecting are for them first. That's the general truth. But in this period, the time of Jacob's trouble, Yes, it'll be a calamity for all those who dwell on the earth. But it will be a calamity for the Jews first. Okay? Be very, very careful of these people who are excited about bringing the Jews back. They're coming back in unbelief. They're coming back not for a blessing. They're coming back for a holocaust. I thank God my family are Israeli Jews who believe. Absolutely. These people who are over the top about bringing the Jews back, and isn't it wonderful? What, what's wonderful? Putting people on a train to Auschwitz? Is that wonderful? Well, putting Jews on a boat to Israel is the same as putting them on a train to Auschwitz. It's going to the time of Jacob's trouble. To put him in unbelief, if you were sending a Jew, read, read books like, like, uh, The Hiding Place. Or read books like The Journey by Rose Wormer. If you knew these Jews were going into an oven, a concentration camp, what would you do? You'd give them the gospel. Well, these Jews going back to Israel, this is what they're going back for. That man who actually signed that agreement not to give the Jews the gospel, his, his, his the very arm was amputated. I personally believe that was God's judgment. He was warned and warned and warned. Nice man, God bless him. How can you do this? Tribulation will be for the Jew first. The time of Jacob's trouble. The church is taken out of it. The Jews go through it. Remember, Jacob wrestled with the angel of God, the Metatron, to the end of the night. The whole tribulation. Time for a break. Two people asked me a question. So therefore, if it's two, it's at least double that, right? Or triple that or something. Turn to Romans, please. The central New Testament teaching, the central New Testament teaching about purpose for the church concerning Israel. The main New Testament teaching. God wants the church to know its obligation is to the Jews. is found in Romans 9 through 11. Okay? That's the purpose. All, again, the epistles are inspired commentary. We look at everything else the Bible says in light of the epistles. It's the apostles taking the other scripture and illuminating it for us on a practical level. This is practically what God says the church's responsibility are to the Jews. Okay. God says. Romans chapter 9, I'm telling you the truth in the Messiah, verse 1. I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I wish I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren who are separated from the Messiah. 
My heart's desire is that they might be saved. A love for the Jews that does not give the Jews Jesus is not the love of Jesus. We love you, Jew. Go to hell. That's not love. That's infatuation, but it's not the love of Jesus. What does it say? Romans 10:14. With no preacher, how shall they hear? Right? Provoke them to jealousy. See the branches grafted in again. Where does it say, forget that, forget giving them the gospel, forget grafting them in again, forget loving them with the, unto salvation, forget all that, just bring them back and don't give them the gospel. Bring them back to Auschwitz. Where does it say that? It doesn't. Prophecy is prophecy and command is command. The Gentiles will bring the Jews back. Yes, there are predictions that say that. What Christian did God need to make the United Nations vote for the partition of 1948 to make that prophecy happen? God used Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin to make a Jewish state more than he used any Christian. That's one of the reasons he allowed the Holocaust. There'd be no Jewish state if there had not been a Holocaust. I can't say anything good about Hitler or Stalin. They were evil, demon-possessed men. But God allowed it and used it in his purpose. If there was no Holocaust, there'd be no Israel. Operation Moses... Belgian airplanes, paid for by American government, flying Jews from Ethiopia into Israel. Prophecy is prophecy. Man is command. Prophecies are signs to be recognized. The return of the Jews to the land is a sign to be recognized. Absolutely. That's a prophecy that needs to be recognized. But we're not told to fulfill the prophecies. We're told to preach the gospel. There are people for centuries, particularly the Greek Orthodox Church and the Roman Church, they looked at the curses of the law. I'll give you into the hands of the Gentiles and they will slay you and your children. Oh, well, there's prediction, there's prophecy that the church, that the Gentiles, we have to, the Jews have to be killed by the Gentiles. So therefore we'll go out and we'll fulfill the prophecy. And we'll murder them. Martin Luther came along. We, we the German people are to blame if we do not slay them to prove we are Christians. Whenever you turn prophecy into a command, you're perverting what the Word of God says to do. Luther and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they murdered Jews physically. Those withholding the gospel are murdering Jews spiritually. I will require their blood of your hands. Read Acts. Read Ezekiel. My wife was a refusenik. She'll tell you, what good would it be if my family and myself came out of Eastern Europe, out of the communists, and went to hell without my Messiah? My wife will tell you it was a tragedy when the Nazis machine gunned my grandfather, but it was a bigger tragedy. He didn't know Yeshua as the Mashiach when they pulled the trigger. Now, thank God for David and Jonathan. Prayer for Israel things. Thank God for those ministries who are bringing Jews out of Israel, but also bringing them out of Satan's kingdom. Thank God for the ones who are preaching the gospel to the Jews. By all means, get the Jews out. Something terrible is going to happen in Russia. I've, I've been saying that for years. But give them the gospel. Romans 9 to 11 is the clearest, most direct teaching about God's purpose for Israel and the Jews as far as the church is to be concerned. Not one time does it ever say, sign an agreement not to give the Jews the gospel in order to get the blessing of the rabbis to bring them back to the great tribulation, <laughs> the time of Jacob's trouble. They're not back for a picnic. They're back for a holocaust. They need to get saved. That's what the Bible says. 
If anybody can show me one place, one verse, where the plain teaching of the Word of God, with no preacher, how shall the Jews hear? Graft them in again. My heart's desire is they might be saved. I'll require their blood in hands if you don't tell them. Find me one verse that, that negates all that in order to have some kind of a social, political, Zionistic program. They can't give you a verse. I'll require their blood of your hands. These organizations who are doing this are accursed of God. And they've been warned. Jews for Jesus published a statement last year. Our first obligation to the unsaved Jews is to give them the gospel. <laughs> to give humanitarian aid, financial aid, your first obligation is to Jews who believe, not the ones who don't. The ones who don't, your first obligation is to give them the gospel, not humanitarian aid. I'm not saying the two are mutually exclusive. You can do both, but you can't do one and not the other. They need salvation. I've challenged these people, International Christian Embassy, which is neither Christian nor an embassy, to debate. They won't do it. Gustav won't debate. None of them will debate publicly. They don't even want it known what their evangelistic policies are, by and large. They don't like to talk about it. Because people will find out that they're not evangelical. They have a social gospel. Now, second question was, Revelation, the, this pattern. Revelation versus Joshua. I'm saying that Joshua is a type, a foreshadow of the pattern in Revelation, and I'm saying that both are types of the rapture. I'm not saying that, that it's the rapture event. Okay? As we'll look at later, the Removal of Noah and his family. The removal of Lot and his family. The removal of the church from Jerusalem in 70 AD are all types of the rapture. Well, these are types of the rapture, okay? But I'm not saying they're the rapture. The rapture doesn't happen here. It happens between the 6th and 7th seal. That's what we're going to pick up now. Turn with me, please, to Matthew 24. Verse 27, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures or eagles will gather. The body, as you listen to the huge history of the church tapes, will face crucifixion, dismemberment, and come under demonic attack. Now we have tapes teaching about this. But not as hair of your head will perish. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, etc. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, now this is on the autumn feast tape, more with the trumpets, and gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. And remember the resurrection and rapture of the same event. The stars, the moon, the sun. Here is where more conservative Christians, who are more right than the allegorical ones, the Gnostics, go wrong. They are simply looking for astral phenomena. 
I don't deny the reality of astral phenomena. Don't deny it. The question is, what does it mean? We deal with this on the Antichrist tapes, as one example. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn from the ceiling to the ground. A literal, actual, physical event happened in a literal, actual, physical temple. But that's not what was most important. What was most important is what it meant. Sinful man was no longer separated from holy God. Okay. Physical event happened, but what did it mean? When the abomination of desolation, if a temple's rebuilt in Jerusalem, and I'm not saying it won't be, and an image is set up, that's not what's most important. What does it mean? Antichrist being worshipped in the church in Christendom. Just look at it. They have homosexual services on television. It's already going that way. Interfaith things. It's already going that way. It's coming to this. Paul Kreef's book. I heard about it in Australia, but David Potter has a copy of it. It's endorsed by men like J.I. Packer, Chuck Colson, men who say they're born-again evangelical Christians. This guy talks about Muslims going to heaven and all sorts. Satan will be worshipped in Christendom. Yeah, I'm saying, sure, they may rebuild the temple. When we take study tours, who's been with us in Israel? One of our tours. We take people into the Temple Mount excavations, don't we? We say, look, these things were secret up to five years ago. We take them in. This is where they reckon the, the Holy of Holies was. We show people everything. We show them Kaufman's plan. We, show, we explain Kaufman's theory and Dan Bahat's theory. And I'll tell you, there's a place worth visiting. It's the model in Suffolk. Alec Arid's model is probably the best model I've ever seen in the world. And, and whether you take Kaufman's view, if you take Dan Bahat's view, it's a model well worth seeing. It's better than any in Israel. If there's a better model than that, I don't know where it is. Maybe this computer model for the better, but no actual models. It's the best I've ever seen. It may happen. Well, so it is with astral phenomena. I'm not saying there will not be sensational things happening. In fact, it would stand to reason it would. When Jesus came the first time, what happened? There was a sign in the... Before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., you read Josephus, there was a comet in the shape of a sword stood over Jerusalem. I don't deny there will not be physical signs. The question is, what do they mean? Abraham was told that his descendants will be like the stars. Now, his descendants are not only physical Jews. In fact, those Jews rejecting Jesus were told many will recline with, come from east and west, Gentiles, and recline with Abraham and the fathers. But the Jews who reject the Messiah will be put out. His descendants are not just physical Jews. They are believing Christians, irrespective of whether they're Jewish or not, as well as the faithful remnant of Israel. For sure. For sure. Now look what it says. What does it say about the stars? The stars will fall from the sky. Look at Revelation. What does the dragon do with its tail? 
it sweeps a third of the stars from heaven. The great falling away, the apostasia. One fell swoop, swish. Somehow, the way a third of the angels fell, that is replayed on the earth. Okay. It's always been interesting to me that one third of the Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Not as much of a connection, but it's interesting. Two-thirds will die in the Great Tribulation. Two-thirds. I'm not praising God for Israel. I'm praising God that my Israeli family have accepted Yeshua. That's what I'm praising God for. When Jesus is on the throne of David, reigning from Jerusalem, then I'll praise God for Israel. Right now, I'm preaching the gospel to Israel, to Jew and Arab, to anybody else I can get to listen. The sun. Arise and shine, Isaiah says, for your light has come. The glory of the risen Lord is brighter than the sun. The moon has no light of its own, does it? It only reflects the light of the... What is the most common metaphor for the great tribulation, tribulation at the end, is the... Night! Watchman, watchman, how far is the night? It's coming like a thief in the night. Right. Virgins need oil to see in the light, uh, night. Night. The light of Jesus will no longer be perceived on the earth. It will no longer be reflected by the church. The moon turns to blood. What do you think that means? Persecution. The astral phenomena will be a reflection of what's happening in the spiritual realm. Okay? There's where they go wrong. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no further sense, unless the context plainly warrants it. Well, it's plain to me it warrants it, but what's plain to me may be plain to them. Something may be plain to you and not to me. That's why we're a body. Different people will see different things. You know, it's amazing to me how many scholars and theologians have this stuff wrong, but how many old ladies who love Jesus, who read their Bible every day, have it right? What does that tell you? What does that tell you? I'm not, not diminishing the, the value of scholarship and theology. If it's Christ-centered, I'm not diminishing that at all. But the illumination of the Holy Spirit goes beyond human intellect. Human intellect is a servant it's for the Master. A lot of people have made it their Master. They've tried to study Scripture, turn theology the way you would study any other secular discipline. The illumination of the Holy Spirit is put on the shelf or obscured by academic method. But that's not to say that true revelation, true understanding will not be academically credible. It will. That's not to say it will not be exegetically plausible. It must be. But it is to say you can have all the ingredients, but without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to understand. There are secular, there, there, are, there are professors in, in, in universities they can read Greek, they can read Hebrew, they know literary criticism, they know more about the Bible than most of us ever will, but they don't know what the Bible's about. They know all about the Bible, but they're not even saved. They don't know what the Bible is about. Now, obvious, the best thing is to have scholarly people who are spirit-filled, isn't it? That's obviously the best. 
Now let's go back to Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Why? <laughs> what follows it? The sign of the sun appears. He sends his angels with a great trumpet and gather his elect. God turns his wrath. Once again, the tribulation is the wrath of Satan up till now. Now, it's God's wrath. <coughs> now, it's God's wrath. <coughs> Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 7. So I make it chapter 6. Verse 12, I looked in verse 12 of chapter 6. And he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair. And the whole moon became like, what does Joel say? Same as the book of Joel, isn't it? What does Joel say about the fig tree? Same as Revelation does. Same as Jesus does. The stars of the sky fell as a fig tree cast its unripe figs. When shaken by a great pneuma. Turn with me, please. Job 15.33 He will drop off his unripe grapes like the vine, and he will cast off his flower like the olive tree. The palm branch. Notice it's a combination of trees. As we will see later, Jesus never said learn the parable of the fig tree. He said learn the parable of the fig tree and the other trees. Look at Jeremiah chapter 8. I'll surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. Who's he going to snatch away? There'll be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaf will wither, and what I have given them shall pass away. What happens before verse 13? Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment they shall be brought down. Follows the same pattern. What does Jeremiah 8 say they'll be saying when this is coming? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. What does Paul warn? Men will be saying peace and security, then the end will come. You understand the danger of people saying there's revival when there is none? You understand the danger of kingdom now theology? Be shaken, anything that can be shaken is going to be shaken, it's going to fall off. One third of the stars, swish. They're already set up for it. They're already set up for it. You know, it's only the grace of God that has restrained things to the point that it is restrained. Now look at Revelation 6 again. And the sky was split. As, well, let's go back to the fig tree. Turn to the epistle of Jude. They are trees without fruit, carried along by winds. Same thing in verse 12. No fruit of the Spirit. The sky was split asunder, like a scroll or its robe up, just like Zechariah. 
and every mountain and island removed out of their place. And the kings of the earth and the great men of the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Compare that to Matthew 24. What happens immediately after the tribulation? Then they'll see the sign of the sun and they'll mourn. They'll want to hide. What happened in Betar with Simon Bar Kokhba, type of the Antichrist? Listen to the Antichrist tapes. The Jews tried to hide themselves in the rocks. Isaiah says they'll be hiding themselves in the rocks. We have a tape, the hiding places of God versus the hiding places of man, the ones that don't work. The people who went to places like Masada weren't saved. The ones who went to the hiding places of God like Ein Gedi were. We have a tape that explains it and how it applies to the last days. And after this, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1, at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on earth or any sea or any tree, I saw an angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now at this point, of course, the seal of the Lamb and, and the mark of the beast become mutually exclusive things. This appears to talk something specifically about the Jews. Now look at verse 9. And after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And they see all the elders and all this stuff. And he says in verse 13, one of the elders answered and said, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know, verse 14, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Not tribulation, great tribulation. During the second half, the rapture is between the sixth and seventh seal. That's when they come out. That's exactly what Matthew 24 says. The signs in the sky, you've got the same thing in Revelation, then they're out. At this point, God centrally begins dealing with Israel and the Jews. We should not take dispensationalism too far, but there is a basic truth in it. Grace comes to an end. God goes back to behaving the way he did in the Old Testament. The God of wrath. Understand. Once his people are removed, he goes back behaving as he did in the Old Covenant. According to the law. It's the God of judgment and wrath, only worse. And there are many things in the Old Testament that teach this, the judgment on Babylon being one of them. You see how that's the rapture? Where are they? On earth? No, they're in heaven. They've been taken out. When were they taken out? Between the sixth and seventh seal, after these signs in the sky. What do these signs in the sky mean? The apostasia, the great falling away, the light of Jesus no longer being seen in the earth. You see how it's going that way now? Talk to unsaved people. Do you know how many kids growing up in council estates have hardly ever heard of Jesus Christ except as a swear word? 
the difference one generation has made. To them, Jesus Christ is a swear word. That's all they know. Effing and blinded, and they just that's, that's what it is to them. That's exactly what it is to them. They don't know. His light is not being seen. There's many Jesus. The Mormons now have their own Jesus, the half brother of Satan. Yet you're having people now, Christians calling Mormons and other their brothers in Christ. They're even some of the marches for Jesus. They're our brothers. They're trying to make themselves look mainstream Christian. The fact that they have another the Catholics have another gospel, the Mormons have another Jesus. New Age has another Jesus. Many will come in my name. <laughs> Saying they're him, but it's not him. It's a different Jesus. The moon is not reflecting the light anymore, is it? What kind of Christian witness do people have? Bob Gass and his UBS satellite radio pushing Toronto and everything else? Or is it the Christian Channel Europe with the gaudy old mother hen asking for money all the time, whatever she's doing? Where is it? What kind of, where's the light of Jesus? The light of Jesus. But this is only the beginning. A time will come when there will be no testimony. Work while you have the light. Night will come when no man can work. That's the rapture. It's not, not as complicated as we've made it out to be. But it was just not time for us to understand it. And we still don't understand it fully. I do not fully understand this. But I do know that he's coming between the sixth and seventh seal. I do know the church will enter the tribulation. I do know faithful Christians will not experience the wrath of God. But they will experience the wrath of Antichrist. And I do know we need to prepare for the future now. Forewarned is forearmed. Timing of the rapture. Now, there are many, many things that prefigure it. What we're going to do is begin looking at Thessalonians. Then we have a type of the rapture Bible study, and tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll have the fig tree, the table of the fig tree, what it really is. It's not what most people think. What most people think it is is only a hint of what it really is. It's much more than that. Much more. You want to know the power of the fig tree? Try reading Judges eight and nine. That's the power of the fig tree. Jesus had learned the power of the fig tree and the other trees. There's only one place in the Bible you have the power of the fig tree and the other trees. Now, how much time do we have? What time is it now? Twenty past. We we have twenty-five minutes. Twenty minutes. Turn with me, please, to First Thessalonians. I want to read you some quotes by some pre-trib theologians. Now, these are good people. At least they're conservative, saved evangelicals. Dallas Seminary, most known for the pre-trib position, is where Arnold Fruchtenbaum learned his eschatology. Dr. John Wilbard, he's very famous. Wilbard is quite famous. Former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, has written that neither post-tribulationism nor pre-tribulationism is an explicit teaching of the Scriptures. The Bible does not, in so many words, state either one. Now, that is the president of the main theological seminary in the world that has most centrally propagated pre-trib 
eschatology. But he says the Bible doesn't explicitly teach it. Another advocate of the pre-tribulation rapture is well known and respected by many conservatives, in many conservative theological circles, Dr. Richard Mayhew, the current dean of Master Seminary in California. Richard Mayhew, Master Seminary is John MacArthur's place. Okay. Now, John MacArthur's a good guy. Don't always agree with him, but he's a good guy. He confirms Dr. Wilbur's position only a little more to the point. He states in his doctrinal dissertation, the prophet's watchword, the day of the Lord, that neither a pre-tribulation nor a post-tribulation rapture is directly taught in Scripture. And pre-tribulationists still have problems to solve in regard to their position. He goes on to say, however, that perhaps the position of pre-tribulationism is correct, although its proof at times has been logically invalid or at least unconvincing. <laughs> These are the main theologians from the main seminaries who teach it. Their students, their graduates, seem more convinced than the professors. That's what they say. That's their own stuff. Yet, you've got people treating this stuff absolutely sacrosanct, don't you? If you question it, you don't believe. I had one person in the north of England, nice guy, says, you don't have a blessed hope. He said, do you believe the Lord can come tonight? And as we'll explain in Thessalonians, well, I believe if I die, God forbid, before my time, I don't want to leave my family, but I believe if I did, the Lord can come for me tonight, yes. The Lord can come for you tonight. The Lord can come two seconds from now. We should always live our lives as if the Lord could come, because He can come from any one of us. It doesn't matter if there's a rapture, resurrection or not, He can come for me. He can come for you. If you die, he came for you. doesn't matter when the rapture is. Yeah, but don't you believe the, the rapture can happen tonight? No. Not yet. You don't have a blessed hope. Paul said he had a blessed hope. So I said, oh, Paul had a blessed hope. That's right. You don't have one. I said, did Paul get what he hoped for? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> it was martyred under Nero. <laughs> it's perfectly understandable to me when people are being martyred and persecuted, why they want the rapture to happen. When I watch some of these things <coughs> in newspapers, homosexuals demanding to teach children this stuff and <coughs> the right to adopt and bring the kids up to be homosexuals and lesbians, I, I, there's been about a dozen times I've been so frustrated at, at our incapacity as a society and as a church to stop this and other, other such evils that I just wanted Jesus to come and put an end to it. <coughs> Some of the injustices I've seen in Africa. Christian children in Sudan being sold into slavery. Right now there are children in Sudan black Christian children being sold into slavery by Muslims. The world turns a blind eye. Yet, Desmond Tutu, I was in Africa about a month ago, he was on TV with his glasses, my Muslim brothers. <laughs> Nobody who's taking little Christian children 
and selling them as slaves, they're not my brothers. I hope they repent and get saved and become my brothers, but they're not my brothers. It's those kids they're selling are my brothers. He's on a platform with Sagormas. They have to remember something. In Africa, practically every single black African Anglican bishop, practically every single one, is a saved Christian, except for Desmond Tutu and his successor. Nigeria, Ghana, Uganda, they're all saved. They will never compromise with homosexuality. At the last, last line of Palestine, it was the Africans who were standing up and speaking up. These are people that are being persecuted in Nigeria. It's only Tutu and his successor. I've seen him on saying that, that Hindus can have the Holy Spirit. And he's on a platform with Sagormas. Sagormas are witch doctors. I was in South Africa about a month ago. This was the headline. Sunday Times in Johannesburg. My man killed my baby. Mom tells how her husband forced her to hold down their child while he slaughtered him like an animal. The face of the father who murdered his son because he says the ancestors told him to do it. Now, he's a Sagorma, witch doctor. He forced his wife to hold the baby down, sawed the baby's head off. The kid was screaming, pleading for his life. This is a two-year-old. Then he dismembers the limbs, mixes the body with herbs, and eats it. And forces his wife to eat it. And he's laughing here, saying he knows he obeyed his ancestors. And now that we have the new South Africa, he has a right to practice his ancestral religion without the white man's oppression. <laughs> I was against the apartheid, <laughs> but if this is the replacement, <laughs> all they've done is gotten rid of one evil for another. He slaughtered the kid like, he ritually slaughtered the child like an animal and then ate it. Tutu gets on a platform with these guys, with witch doctors. I get angry. If that's the church, I want Jesus to come back. I get angry. You know, the martyrs. More Christians have been martyred in this century than any other century. You know that? The 20th century has seen the martyrdom of more Christians than any other century. And we have people teaching, you don't have to suffer. God wants you rich. Lies with messages from hell. Don't tell them that in Nigeria. Don't tell them that in Nigeria. Sensaniah Hosea lived in southern Nigeria in his limousine before he died. Christians in northern Nigeria faced the Holocaust, the hands of Islam. I've seen too much of this. I go to all these countries. I've seen this stuff. I know what goes on. I went to the Ex-Catholics for Christ conference. I held up 20 pages of reports from Open Doors. I asked them, can you fax me your latest material on persecution of believers in Catholic countries? 20 pages of reports of churches being burned, of people being murdered by and covered up by government officials, acting at the behest of the priests. Nobody said a word about it. Chuck Colson and all these guys saying it's okay to be a Catholic, they're our brothers, and they're persecuting Christians. I get so angry and frustrated, I want Jesus to come back. You can understand why people want him to come back. You get frustrated. And the poor Christians who are suffering, you can understand why they want him to come back. But the point is, because we want him to come back, does that mean he's coming back when we want him to? Do we have a blessed hope? 
Our blessed hope is to be with him, whether it is by rapture or resurrection. They are the same event. Turn with me, please, to Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2. <clears throat> the resurrection is prolific. His resurrection and ours are the same event. He's simply the chronological first. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. It would seem to suggest he's coming between the second and third millennium. It's not date setting. And it's not, I'm not saying that dogmatically. I'm just saying it raises the possibility. He'll raise us up on the third day just like he did. The third day must mean something. Okay? Must mean something. The resurrection and the rapture are the same event. We who are alive will be caught up and meet them in the air. It's the same event. We'll come to that when we get to Thessalonians. One of these days. Let's begin. Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Now notice it's not just from Paul, it's from his cohorts, Silvanus and Timothy. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, by God his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Now, they talked about the hope. Hope in the Bible is future fact. It is not I wish. It is it's a future fact. The rapture, resurrection, if you're dead, you're alive, it doesn't matter. It's a future fact. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much synopsis, tribulation, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice in the tribulation they had joy because they knew why they were suffering. Imitators of us and of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Jesus was perfected through suffering. Not that he needed to suffer. But for our sakes, he did it. So, Paul says, you become imitators not only of us, but of Jesus. Through your tribulation, your being willing to suffer. We may not all suffer to the same degree, but we must all be willing to suffer. You understand? A servant is not above his master. 
When you have these people teaching you're a king's kid, you don't have to suffer. The devil's robbing you of your blessing. You don't have faith. Again, we've talked about it many times. They're teaching faith in faith, not faith in Jesus. Not faith in Jesus. You understand how it's setting people up? So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Asia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Asia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Yeshua, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice what it's doing. It is making a distinction between two things. It's drawing a distinction between philipsis, tribulation, persecution by Satan, and the wrath of God, doesn't it? Matthew 24, the same. We have to make the distinction between philipsis and the wrath of God. We always interpret the more complicated in light of the explicit. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.